It's a peaceful protest. We walking, raising awareness. Some of the injustice that we've been seeing is not okay. And as a young person, you gotta you gotta listen to our perspective. Our voices need to be heard. People are gonna look back. Our kids are gonna look back at this and say, "You were a part of that." I got a grandfather that marched next to Dr. King in the '60s, and he was amazing. He would be proud to see us all here. We gotta keep pushing forward. Sports are like the reward of a functional society. Sirius XM Sports presents Forward Progress, a weekly open conversation on race and sports in America. Here are your hosts, Jason Jackson and Kirk Morrison. Here we are once again, together again. So glad you stopped by the program. A lot of good stuff to get to. Uh, a first in Nebraska, a reversal in Utah. Uh, we will spend some time with uh, the CEO and president of the Dallas Mavericks. She has a brand new book that's out. But we'll start off with a decision that's not being received well, Kirk, anywhere. Uh, and it's the end of the investigation around um, just bottom line, terrible activity going on in the Suns organization. And right at the tip of the spear is the behavior of the team's governor himself, Robert Sarver, who received a one-year suspension, fined $10 million. We should note this is the extent of the law inside of <laughs> the NBA. After investigation finds conduct clearly violated workplace standards. Here's here's one thing. Let me, let me give you the, as we tape this on Wednesday, yeah. on Thursday of this week, I'm going to my workplace standards uh, training that okay. each NBA team provides <laughs> So you know exactly what I'll be starting with in my Q&A with our uh, league-sanctioned trainers, if you will. But uh, there's two ways that I'm going to lay this down. There is what we all want to have occurred once all of it uh, had been noted that at least five times Sarver used the N-word when recounting uh, statements by others, so quoting some other people. Um, instances of uh, inequitable conduct toward females, uh, sex-related comments. This, these are multiple boxes that are right. that are being dealt with here. And I think there was an expectation, uh, particularly because of what uh, the commissioner of the NBA, Adam Silver, has been able to adjudicate in these scenarios over his tenure. And I think we'll bring to mind, obviously. Uh, 10 seconds after taking the job, he's dealing with uh, the Clippers' uh, Donald Sterling situation. Mm-hmm. Had to uh, oversee what went down, so, which gets, by the way, by the wayside, the Atlanta um, uh, incident with um, the way that they were talking to internally about season ticket holders and and how black the environment is. And right. also, I think the Luau Dang, the Luau Dang uh, story yeah. that so many people know about uh, mm-hmm. the, their perceptions yes, of Africans. Yeah. Yes. So you something out the front and something else out the back. Out the back. Yep. And uh, and also what happened in Dallas? Matter of fact, um, with a workplace that was toxic as well. And the differing things that, that can go down in that space. Uh, I think people were looking for a swift uh, machete swing uh, to the extent of Sarver losing ownership. And number one, let's talk about how hard that is. Yeah, the, the, it's it. I think because of the swift way in which it felt like the Sterling thing went down, plus ownership 
change in Atlanta that it's something simple to do, but it's, it's three fourths majority vote to get that done. Mm -hmm. And then you have to, and that's just banning. Then you got to get to the encouragement of sale. Um, I'm not saying that those things are impossible. I'm not saying those things shouldn't have been on the table. It's just not simple. And I'm not sure anybody was looking for a simple solution, uh, but it, it turns into a whole nother thing uh, far beyond the ease at which I think a lot of people, I, I thought there should have been a harsher penalty, but I also know that this is the harshest penalty that's on the books. Mm. And if you're going to get beyond the books, then you're now going into a whole nother space. That's now probably the Sarver fight back. These are all elements that you have to put into the equation. Um, and, and it can be argued that any fight, when you start looking at these things uh, that, that were found in this racism and misogyny that was detailed uh, over what, what's been 17 years of, of team ownership for Sarver, uh, that whatever you have to deal with is what you deal with. And you just eliminate the fact that that is the governor of that, uh, not just the Suns, but also the, the Phoenix Mercury from the WNBA. Uh, but but right now, on the surface, everyone, full finger wag, this wasn't enough. No, it wasn't enough. It, we all know that owners um, in sports, I know you call them governors, but <clears throat> the I person who... Transitioning the... Uh, <laughs> I know, I see. I, I'm working on it too, brother. You got yes, me sir. working on it, man. I appreciate you. But the one thing that we do know is that a lot of these men have a... Men and women, uh, families, have a lot of money. <laughs> to be able to have a franchise in American sports, let alone just world sports, number one, right? Number one, it's you, you got to have enough cash. You got to have enough moolah. So to that group of people, $10 million is like a drop in the bucket. You know, that's, that's $10 million. Yeah. That's if you just had enough. 1 billion. Which yeah, <laughs> you got one billion, ten million. That's just look, here you go. Just that's that, that's not going to make or break that person. Um, so to me, the the money aspect of it doesn't really do anything for me. I think what does something for me is banning someone of like Sarver, not necessarily having a banning for ten years, five years, but one of the great things that I've always known is that being a governor of a team is you get access. This is what you got the team for. This is mine. Uh, this is mine. I own this. Well, what if someone tells you, well, you know what? You can't be around this for two years. Would that get the message across? Would that do? And I don't, the thing is, <clears throat> I keep talking about a message, Jax. What, what's already been said has been said. My, my biggest thing is when I was reading this, just what was going on, this investigative report, I kept telling myself that the toothpaste is already out of the tube, though. Like, that, you, you can't put it back in. Like, he's said these things. He's done these things. And a fine or a, a suspension isn't going to take that stuff away. It's not going to take what he's done back. And my only thing is, had an investigative story not been released would we have ever known because this has been kind of behind closed doors this is what people have 
maybe talked about but were shunned away didn't didn't feel like they could speak up and an article helped get this out to where the nba stepped in and then finally came down with a ruling to me i, I feel like we already had dropped the ball because this has probably been ongoing for a long period of time Sarver in a statement said, while I disagree with some of the particulars of the NBA's report, I would like to apologize for my words and actions that offended our employees. I take full responsibility for what I've done. I'm sorry for causing this pain and those errors in judgment are not consistent with my personal philosophy or my values. I accept the consequences of the NBA's decision. This moment is an opportunity for me to demonstrate a capacity to learn and grow as we continue to build a work culture where every employee feels comfortable and valued. Um, I'm looking forward to a couple of weeks from now. Okay. Um, when we uh, are, we've opened training camp and we can hear from current Suns players. How do they react to this? It feels like a lot of this has been shielded from basketball operations, that this right. is a, the business side was, was really the space where a lot of this was running rampant. And, and it might have changed because the regime has changed. I know that Earl Watson, former head coach, uh, was one of the many who got a call to be a part of this investigation. I got a funny feeling knowing Monty Williams the way that I do, that it's been <laughs> very straight and narrow uh, mm -hmm. for basketball since he's arrived. And uh, the players that are currently around uh, probably – have not even had a, a, a much to deal with as it pertains to this. Let's put it that way. Right. And now it will be the very first focus of their return to the hardwood 26th, 27th, whenever um, they get really rolling for camp. But uh, it'll be interesting. I mean, you had 320 current and former employees uh, interviewed in this investigation. Yeah. 80,000 documents, emails, text messages, videos. Uh, and you can dig through the report, almost 50 pages. Uh, it's been put out there. But uh, what an interesting part for, and, and it's not to take away any of the intensity of the individuals that were actually involved in some of this behavior um, in other parts of the organization, but now the face and voices of the organization, the head coach, the star players, yeah. they now will have to engage and, and, yeah. <laughs> and, and weigh in on some of this as they're trying to start their season. Yeah. I mean, no longer are you talking about a, a loss to the Dallas Mavericks right? in, in the playoffs a year ago. Now your conversation is now talking um, about what is going on in ownership and how this is not okay. It's, it's crazy to think that this isn't the first time for Chris Paul, right? Chris Paul has had to endure this. You mentioned a little bit earlier when Silver took over and yeah. going on with uh, with the Clippers, right? And Donald Sterling and how he had to sort of handle that and navigate through that. So now he's got to now navigate through this. This is a, you know, this is a tough one too. And, and my thing is, I just, I keep saying this over and over is that you have to make an example. And you did that with Donald Sterling. Honestly, what makes what, what makes this different, Jax? I'm I'm, I'm really trying to figure. The, this the out. only what thing that I would say, and again, I feel like I'm arguing things I don't really. Yeah, I'm not. I would have wanted a heavier hammer lay here. Is that 
man, the tape. Correct. That's, tape. that's exactly what I was going to say. Had, had this audio of Robert Sauer, yeah. had, this, had there been audio? Listen, I, all of this is relatively circumstantial. I mean, I think there's some texts and some emails a part of this, but not as dramatic as right. that Sterling tape. tape. Yeah. And I listen I, again. I people are angry. There are people, former staffers, folks that feel like they've been let down by this, and that needs to be the measure of it. But um, the, the reality of what litigation coming back from Sarf, I'm sure, way back in this, right. if, if 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 the league decided they want to try to take that team, does he stand in and dig in and fight in a way that creates discovery that the NFL and Gruden are going? in against i i don't know all of them literally it was great um amino hassan who usually sits in on this program yeah uh, was good enough to come on the air after this decision over on nba radio uh on tuesday and really opened my mind to thinking about this um more from a practical adjudication standpoint and less emotionally okay. and he was checking those boxes of how do we lay down a hammer as a league? This is board of governors and, and, and the commissioner thinking, how do we lay down a hammer and not open ourselves up to some mess? Because how many governors, how many people in the span of their lifetime mm-hmm. of their public life <laughs> don't have something that they, that they're pretty sure they don't want out in the street too. Right. No, I get Sterling, everybody yeah. knew he was a complete mess, <laughs> a terrible right. human being, a slum Lord. And, yeah. and almost like, when will the time come? We can take this man down. You know, we found there it, was yeah. that type of feel. <laughs> I don't know Sarver well enough to know that there's that lasting full, like since he came in post Colangelo, uh, that that's the same vibe. And again, bullet point after bullet point after bullet point of terrible workplace dynamics led by the man himself, right? That's the separation of what happened in Dallas and here is that Cuban was probably negligent not being his hands-on. But again, he's got executive staff, mm-hmm. right? That's why those people got blown out. This is the man himself. I, I feel for the folks that were fair catching this yesterday in a way that just is beyond disappointing for them. It's disappointing. You wish there would have been more done, but at the end of the day, it's, uh, you know, it's just you want to make sure that this that this doesn't become uh, sort of the theme of their season. You want to move on from it, but allow this man to heal from what has been done, but also change the organization around. And when I say change it around, now people are aware and won't be afraid to speak up. I feel like this has been going on for a while, and finally it took something like this to let's stop and let's clean up this workplace. When we come back, Sent Marshall will be on the program. She's the chief executive officer of the Dallas Mavericks, has a brand new book out. This is a life that has been lived with more to come. Make sure you stay with us as we visit with Ms. Marshall next on Forward Progress. You're listening to Forward Progress on Sirius XM Radio. Great to have with us on the program, the CEO of the Dallas Mavericks and, uh, AT&T's former senior vice president of human resources and chief diversity officer, Sent Marshall. But we, we put all those caps down and <laughs> we love the courage and the wonderful audacity of anyone to write a book. And so she has done that glory say, I'm so afraid of the concept that I, <laughs> that I pay homage to anyone who does. Uh, the name of the memoir, You've Been Chosen, Thriving Through the Unexpected and uh, Sent Marshall's with us here on the program. Welcome to Forward Progress. Thank you, it's so good to be here and it's so good to see you. How are you doing today? Uh, it's <laughs> magnificent uh, to have you with us 
We're happy that you're with us uh, to detail this story. And uh, you have one. I mean, you've been mm-hmm. through some things. Uh, I don't know if this is the top for you, but it's the top for many of us who uh, have the orange leather as our primary uh, source of income. So we appreciate the fact uh, <laughs> that you come into forward progress with the, the NBA connection. Yes. But this is about you and your story uh, mm-hmm. that starts uh, in, a, in a super challenging household coming up. Uh, dealing with what's happening in the world. I I remember vividly my grandmother saying in the late 70s, we don't want to hear anything about your problems. It's too hard being black. So so oftentimes your personal stuff got mushed down because of what was happening out in the world. And and then you maneuvering through uh, corporate America and then your own struggles with with health and uh, getting to the other side of all of it. Let's start first, so much to cover, with right. why you would want to put it uh, pen to paper or fingers to a uh, keyboard, however you go about it, and, and and tell us all all your business. Well, you know what? it's it's uh, It started out with, well, first of all, it's good to be here. So thank you for both of y'all for talking to me today. Um, it started <laughs> out with me wanting to share my cancer journey uh, because I, I kept a, care, um, a, a journal and I published it when I was going through chemotherapy. And it was a way, frankly, to just keep people updated who were calling a lot when I was going through my cancer battle. And so people would continue to call after I you know, came out on the other side, people would call and ask for uh, that journal. And so someone actually told me one day, they said, you know, we should turn it into a book because people are asking for it all the time. You know, somebody who actually is going through cancer or going through a colon cancer battle or going through chemotherapy, or somebody who's just supporting them. And so it went from trying to, you know, publish my journal after, you know, 10 years after my battle, and people telling me to do that. And then the publisher said, there's no way since you could have gone through cancer the way you did with the attitude that you went through with the optimism and all that without there being a deeper story. And so then they, you know, how they do, they start talking to you and all that. And then before you know it, you're telling them all these stories. And they said, okay, we need to put that in the book. And kind of like you, I was adamant about it not being in the book. I said, I just want to touch people who are touched by cancer. I'm just, I just want to be a blessing to them. And they said, no, you're going to touch people who are going through a whole lot. And we want to tell some of these stories. And I'm not shy. I mean, I give speeches about thriving through adversity and the unexpected and all that. So a lot of it ended up in this book, but it's probably a tenth of the story, honestly. But it ended up between, as you can see, it ended up between, there's a personal story between each round of chemo. You know, since I'm a sucker for a headline, okay? You get me yeah. a good headline, you know what? I'll, I'm clicking on it. But it's the same thing when it comes to a book title. Yeah. And when I read the book title of You've Been Chosen Through the Thriving Through the Unexpected, how did you come to that headline, to that story, to that book title, um, to to basically tell your story? Well, it's because when I was, uh, you know, working with the publisher and all that, they said, Sim, when we read your journal, you say a few times throughout that you've been chosen. That and I, and I would say that, that I was chosen for the chemo class of 2011. And there's nothing that has ever happened to me that I don't think I was chosen for. I mean, I was chosen for it. I, I know I was chosen for it. Uh, and we're all chosen because there is something divine. Uh, that is working in our lives. And so uh, I believe I have been chosen to go through everything and I've gone through either to prepare me for what's coming next 
or to be able to be a blessing and testify to somebody else. And so they said that I wanted to call it. Actually, my journal was called Winston and the Clubhouse because I named my chemo pump Winston from the movie How Stella Got a Groove Back. Okay. And so my chemo <laughs> pump was Winston. Okay. He Winston. was doing this thing. Oh, no, Winston. <laughs> okay. So my journal, okay. <laughs> my journal was called Winston and the Clubhouse because I named the cancer infusion suite the Clubhouse. Because I'm like, you know, we're in a game here and we're fighting for our lives and, you know, we're all up at bat. So that was the name of my journal. But then as the publishers and folks worked with me, they just said, no, you continue to talk about how you've been chosen. You've been equipped for this. And so we think a good title would be you've been chosen because you continue to say that. And I hadn't I didn't realize that I did say that a lot when I was going through my battle. I've been chosen for this and I'm uniquely equipped uh, to get through it. So that's where the title came from. So all my family sheathed me. They come up to me with that hand. You've been chosen. I'm like, get out of here. <laughs> but that's where it came from. Because I believe we're all chosen. I believe the Lord has a, a a plan for our lives. And we go through the things that he ordains. And we go through it for a reason. We go through it for a reason. So you've been chosen. Seth Marshall, the author of said book, also the chief executive officer of the Dallas Mavericks with us here on Forward Progress. You alluded to the, uh, this idea a little bit earlier of having a single thought entering uh, the idea of putting this text together for all of us and as you're fighting stage three colon cancer. As you were beginning to open up about everything in your life, was there a certain subject that, that you really had to be prodded on that you just, you didn't feel like, or it was going to be challenging to share with the world, and then you ended up doing it. What, which topic was that? Yes, actually, I didn't really want to get into uh, my corporate life uh, because I decided a long time ago uh, that kind of the 36 years was a 36 years. So I just decided a long time ago I'd never write a book about just my career. That every you know a lot of people have careers, mine's nothing special, uh, and so I wouldn't tell uh, a lot of those stories and. I ended up telling some of those stories uh, later in life in speeches and all that, especially around authenticity and some of the things that we go through as uh, Black people, as Black women, uh, as women. And so um, they wanted to tell, you know, the agents wanted to tell some of those stories. And I'm like, that's okay, because it will help somebody. If it will help somebody, then let's do it. But I wasn't going to talk about a lot of the corporate stuff. I just said my 36 years was my 36 years. It was a good 36 years. Had some stuff in it, but it was a good 36 mm -hmm. years and I was going to leave it. Uh, but I hope when people read that, uh, they will think about, uh, you know, kind of their own lives and what they're going through and how they can get through it. Now, my instinct is that that's a little counterintuitive because maybe the personal stuff was more gut wrenching. Why was it so much easier for you to check? OK, I'll tell these stories that are aligned with my personal life more than maybe the corporate life. Yeah, the, the personal stuff, uh, I and I will say, only say because it was in about 2008 or nine when my mother gave me, when I asked my mother if I could talk about domestic violence because uh, mm. this organization had asked me to speak and uh, they wanted to raise like a million dollars for the organization. And so they just wanted my story growing up and all that. And I called my mother. I said, you know, you've always talked about there's a story to be told and we need to tell it at the right time. And I think some people in here will need to hear the story of how, you know, we made it through that. And I asked her for her permission and she said, oh, by all means, by all. And I told her about the organization. She said, please tell it. 
And it ended up truly being a blessing uh, to a lot of people to hear what we had gone through and how we had come out on the other side of it. And it was one of those taboo kind of subjects where you just don't talk about domestic violence. And she, she, she gave me the permission to tell that story. And when I think about the response to it, oh my goodness. And that's when I realized that sometimes we, or at least I do, have to tell the story because other people are going through it. It's probably therapeutic for me too, but uh, it really is because uh, the Lord has really been good. And a lot of people are going through things. And so for me to tell it, because people see me and they, you know, they see kind of who I am right now and they don't see all, you know, they see the, they don't see the test. Uh, and I thought, you know what, I do have a testimony. And I think people need to know that because other you don't, you don't know who's going through what and you can help them get through it. So it was not, it was not hard. Once I got permission and once I started telling that story a few years ago, it was, it was not hard. You know, for you, it seems like everything that you do, you're always the first, right? She's the first black woman to do this. She's the first black woman to do this. The first black woman in leadership, the first black woman CEO of an NBA team, first black woman. And I'm saying after a while, you know, you hear that so much since. And then how do you describe that? And then how do you almost move past that where it's like, I don't want to just be the first black woman to do this. I just want to be the best person that is doing the job that is needed for me to do. I, I love that question. Well, first of all, usually when I'm the first, I don't know I'm the first. I mean, like you, you really don't know that, especially when, you, when you're involved in older institutions and all that. You don't know if you're the first. You may have been the first in a long time, maybe the first some people now have ever seen. So you really don't know it. And I didn't, I didn't know I was the first black woman to be the CEO of an NBA team until I was doing a TV interview and Craig Melvin asked me about it. And I said, I can't be the first. And back then it was 2019, right? when he interviewed right. me and I said, there's no way I'm the first in 2019. I think that's actually embarrassing. And so then we had this whole discussion about that because some of these first, I shouldn't be the first, but the way I look at it is maybe I'm the first, but I'm not going to be the last. And so then I get real focused on making sure that I'm working on the second, third, fourth, fifth, and that other people, my colleagues who don't look like me are also working on the second, third, fourth, and fifth. Uh, so it, it, it's not pressure. It's actually uh, I welcome it uh, to, you know, and then I say I got to do it right. I have to do it right. I have to do a good job. I have to show people that people who look like me can come in and do these big jobs because shame on me if the second, third and fourth aren't right behind me. So that's just the way I look at it. It's, it's a challenge to make sure there's another one and another one and another one. And usually sometimes when people say first, I said, OK. Maybe I'm one of the first because some of these institutions are so old that you just figure there had to be another black person uh, in one of these positions. But I welcome it. I know I'm blessed when it happens, but I know there's a tremendous obligation to make sure I'm not the last. And I'm focused on it every single day. I will not be the last. She is Seth Marshall, CEO of the Dallas Mavericks, her memoir, You've Been Chosen Thriving Through the Unexpected. Let's go back to the beginning. That's the best place with every story. Uh, growing up in Northern California, uh, you note uh, in housing projects, uh, you shared with us the violence that was kind of the, the backdrop of your life. But walk us through your childhood and how that framed your thinking to even start becoming all these things that we're talking about. Well, I know it's going to sound crazy, but I actually, I actually had a good childhood. 
I did. I had some things that happened uh, in my childhood that were awful, like seeing my father, you know, shoot a man. But actually, that was in self-defense. And mm. fortunately, it wasn't fatal. Uh, but a young man came to our house um, and I kind of had to sneak out the back room and see what was going on because I, I was quiet, believe it or not. But I was kind of nosy. I wanted to see what was going on. And I should have stayed in that back room because that young man saw me and pointed the pistol down at me. And my father uh, responded to that. Uh, so I did see that. And I did have a uniformed police officer take me to school after that in the seventh grade. Um, mm -hmm. And it was I mean, I want to go to school and my mom made sure that I went to school. And, and that was truly the foundation that we stood on in our house. Education was everything. And my mom put two books at my, in my hand at an early age, a math book in one hand and a Bible in the other, and just had us focused on those books. She gave me four words to live by, dream, focus, pray, and act. Uh, and so even my dad was focused on education. But we were in the project. There were some things that happened. Yes, there was violence there. Uh, my father broke my nose when I was 15 years old. And my mother, when we went back to our house, because we had to flee the house for the summer, my mother's prayer was that we would make it back home before school started. And we made it back home uh, a week before. I mean, my mother was a praying woman. She still is a woman of faith. And she put something before the Lord and we'd watch it unfold. And so we made it back home. And I had that brace on my nose and she sent me to school as a junior in high school, head cheerleader with this brace on my nose, cheering like that's normal. And fortunately, three teachers and a principal embraced me, embraced my mom, wanted to know what was going on. Uh, and they, uh, they worked with us and put me on a path, frankly, to go to college. And that's how I ended up uh, graduating at the top of my class and got all these full ride scholarships to college and chose the one closest to home and the number one public uni university, public institution, number one in the country, uh, <laughs> University of California at Berkeley. And so it was all these people showing up uh, in my life through all this uh, adversity. People just showed up and God always uh, showed up and I was smart. And so these teachers and different ones embraced me and they showed me things and opened things up to me. That's why education is so important to me now. When I was growing up, zip code didn't matter. Everybody got a great education. And so that's one of my passions right now. Zip code should not matter. It, hmm. it, my mother used to always say, it's not where you live, it's how you live. And with God, all things are possible. And that should be the story of every child right now, that it doesn't matter where you live, it's how you live. And so we're all working together. And I know you you guys are too on that mission to make sure that zip code doesn't matter. And mine, and mine didn't. And so I was able to get through all that because of some great people who always showed up, some great teachers, some great educators. They, they, just, they showed up for me, along with a mother who is just a true, true angel. Well, you've been in many leadership positions, right, Sint? And when you're in leadership positions, so many people go to you. But I know one thing that you, you've talked about before, and this kind of is what's going on in our society. Everyone looks around and they sort of embrace the, the struggle of why me? Everybody wants to have a struggle and say, why me? Why me? But you obviously turn it around differently instead of saying, why me? Why not me? You know what I mean? What, well, how do you tell people who feel like they always have to play the victim what they can do about it? Things happen, you know, th and I said it before, okay? Things happen for a reason. I just believe that. I don't believe anything happens in our life that's not ordained. I just, I just fundamentally don't believe that. And so what I try to do is figure out, okay, what is the purpose for this? And 
How am I going to get through it? I know some people are going to show up. I know I, I just believe I'm not going to get through it by myself. So what am I supposed to learn from this? But then what am I supposed to get out of this that truly like the world can benefit from it? That's just the way I think. That's how my mother uh, kind of had us process things. And so my message is always, as you said, why not me? Why? I mean, I'm equipped for this with things that I've gone through in my life. I can take this on and then I can make a bigger impact uh, and help the world even be better. And, and especially like at my age right now, it's just about, you know, trying to help things and trying to take my experiences and make other people and the world better. And then I get better along the way. So the victim thing just actually doesn't work for me because I don't I think uh, I, I, I came up with this saying one time and then it stuck with me. I said, sometimes the light at the end of the tunnel is a train. Sometimes bad things just <laughs> do happen to good people. Yeah. Sometimes it's a train. Accept it. It is coming at you to knock you down and roll you over. But every time in my life that I have been knocked down, I was not knocked out. And there was always a hand that was there to pick me back up. When we lost our daughter, and you probably read it in the book, when I when my husband ended up going to see his parents that weekend right after the funeral because he just couldn't be in the house anymore. And I didn't want to go. And I was trying to go up those stairs. And I just fell out that Friday evening. And when he came back home that Sunday evening, I was still laying there, okay, grieving, crying. I mean, just just trying to get it all out. And I can still remember to this day, my husband walking back in, seeing me laying there, and I had been there for 48 hours, and just putting his hand, putting his hand down there, and picking me up. That's the story of my life, and that's the story of most of our lives. Somebody is always there. Uh, to pick you up. That's why my theme song, you know, my theme song is Ain't No Mountain High Enough. Yes. Come on, there it is. <laughs> Tammy Terrell, Marvin Gaye version. I was version, about to ask like you which Mark- edition. Yes. I like the Michael McDonald version too, but you go back to Marvin and Tammy because and, and that's my theme song in life. It's my theme song for every uh, company that I've ever worked for. I take that in with me. Ain't no mountain high enough to keep me from getting to you. If you need me, call me. And that's the world that we live in. I believe that we are our brother's keepers. I also believe there ain't no mountain high enough to keep us from being able to climb it together. And so those are dreams. Those are things that we have to deal with in society. We work together. We call each other up and we go and take the mountain. And that's just that's just how I live. There's just nothing we can't solve. And we have a lot of things right now, as we know, in this country that we need to solve. But we got to take the mountain together. Cynthia so Marshall. that's my story about being a victim. And now sharing it through the memoir, you've been chosen. It's great to have Cynthia Marshall with us here on the program. There is someone listening right now that says, I'm glad that worked for you, Miss Marshall, um, but I don't have anyone or I don't, I don't know where I want to go. And I firmly believe that you, you have to give young people uh, an opportunity to see other things so that they can dream and believe in other things. Uh, when you don't have the energy or the drive or the people or the message inside of you, what do we advise these young folks that 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 may just feel like um, the train that you alluded to earlier uh, never stops, that it just keeps rolling over? Here, here's what I would tell them. And I, I have four um, I have four children, as you know, and they're, they're all adopted. So they all have their own abandoned, neglect, abuse stories. Both of my daughters were found on TV by my son. 
Okay, so I got the Wednesday's mm-hmm. child, the Friday's child, all that, right? And I look at kind of what they went through very, very early on in their lives. And what I continue to tell them is, and especially these days with COVID and all that, that there will be days, and I've had those days, where you just feel like giving up, where you just don't know where the hope and optimism is coming from. What I usually like to do, I realize it's, it's not coming from me. I don't have it right now, but somebody else has it. And I know God has it. Okay, so I'll pray and I got the prayer clause and all that. Not everybody has that. But somebody is there for you. We have to open up. We have to open up. We have to talk to people. If it's just one person, you let one person know what you're going through. So that person can be that hand uh, to pull you up. Uh, When I was in college and I was in a sorority and it was just me and 110 of my white girlfriends and and maybe a couple, couple of other ethnicities, but I was the only one with the Afro. And we used to sing this song every Monday night in something called Vespers. And I'm a you know kid from the projects. I never heard of Vespers. But every Monday night, we'd sing this song, No Man is an Island. And at 19 years old, I thought that was the corniest song. I'm like, this is crazy, okay? And then I realized later what they were instilling in us. And the song says, no man is an island. No man stands alone. Each man's joy is joy to me. Each man's grief is my own. We need one another, so I will defend each man as my brother, each man as my friend. Okay, and you can add man or woman. And what they were telling us is you are not in this world alone and don't even try to be a person on an island because no man is an island. We need each other. I got that in me at 19 years old, and I have tried to put that in my kids. You are not on an island. You don't have to make all decisions. You don't have to have the answers. You don't have to just lay there forever when that train comes to hit you. Tell somebody, talk to somebody, make your way to that phone, make that your way to that text because somebody is there to get you through it. Somebody is singing ain't no mountain high enough to keep me from getting to you. There's somebody out there. If nothing else, I'm here. You two are here. Yeah, we're here. But what I really want to know is this, all of this you got going on, but when you're able to go be a fan, be a fan of your team. Tell me, how does that fandom work? Are, are you screaming loud? I know how the owner is. I know where he's going to be at, but where are you at? What are you doing on game day for the Mavericks? Are you you screaming, come on, Luca, let's go now. Like, I am doing? crazy. I am crazy. I'm the first one yelling, let's go, Mavs. And, you know, we start the game with, you know, it's, it's time to party. So, you know, I'm crazy in the arena. My very first game when I was sitting there with Mark, uh, so it was the night we had our press conference and all that. And all of a sudden, the, they actually started playing Ain't No Mount High Enough. So they had done their research. I got up and went crazy. My boss just looked. I said, oh, I guess he didn't know I was crazy. Okay. So he <laughs> has found that out. I love our Mavs. Okay. Our season, season starts October 22nd. It is go. going to be live. And, you know, I, I, you know, I have a lot of, uh, you know, guests and season ticket holders and different ones and sponsors that I had that I go in community groups that so I make my rounds almost the whole game. I love every second of it. I have my son actually, my 30-year-old, made an Instagram post a few weeks ago, and he actually posted a video of me in the car rocking to Ain't No Mountain High Enough. It was blasting. I was <laughs> dancing. I didn't even know the boy was taking, you know, these kids like they get you. And he was saying, This is how my mom pulls up to a game, and it's true. I'm wild. I'm wild. Our team is so exciting. Like, go Mavs. Go Mavs. As it should be. She is the chief executive officer of those Dallas Mavericks, author of her newly released memoir, You've Been Chosen, Thriving Through 
the unexpected. Sen, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for spending time with us. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I appreciate both of you. Coming up next, new findings at BYU and new endeavors at Nebraska. Those stories when we come back here on Forward Progress. You're listening to Sirius XM Radio. Radio. We now return to Forward Progress. Here's Jason Jackson and Kirk Morrison. the mess we have with this BYU Duke scenario. Uh, the, the officials at Brigham Young University said it found no evidence of racial heckling during a women's volleyball match against Duke last month after the school call, uh, called an extensive review of the incident. Hmm. And uh, we know the whole story about Duke uh, volleyball player Rachel Richardson, who's black, alleged that she Heard a racial slur directed her during uh, a match in late August. And uh, a, a BYU fan that, that was banned has now been unbanned because the investigation uh, has found that there's been nothing. Here's one thing. I, when going back, uh, I, I, and I remember the first thing I wanted to do was hear. Okay. Right? Like I went in and, and tried to listen because there wasn't a great deal of commentary over the top of whatever I was listening to uh, at the time. And I was waiting to have an audible experience, but there's a lot of cheering and some, some other ambient noise. So I'm, I'm super skeptical from the standpoint that you make that decision based upon uh, what the school says, uh, all review, review, all available video and audio recordings. Uh, They did say they contacted 50 people who attended the event, Mm -hmm. uh, including some Duke athletes and staff members there was a lot of noise coming in from the right side of our nation's ideology, uh, right. calling this BS, which that tends to be the standard first item that comes from the folks uh, who are tired of being human, apparently. And I don't think I'm getting outside the box when I say that that part of the country is super conservative and probably a little more leading toward the, the, just the overall thinking. University Correct. campuses tend to be a little more progressive in their approach and thought. Mm-hmm. Um, to, to the point where they're actually, you know, uh, kicked in the face for it, which is crazy. Uh, but I feel like that has been the real push to not take someone's word and experience and then trying to find, I, I just need someone to provide me with some evidence that there would be some positive for Ms. Richardson and her family to articulate a falsehood to begin with. So I, yeah. I weight the, the weight of what you can really <laughs> investigate in these moments in hindsight, unwilling to take the word of someone that's having the scenario go down uh, and the reasoning, like what, what are we weighing here, Kurt? Well, I mean, <clears throat> this could be honest. Remember Tom, uh, Tom Homo, their athletic director at BYU came out mm-hmm. the next day, remember, and, and spoke to the fans, spoke to everybody said we don't condone the behavior so there was sort of not necessarily an admission but there was people who said that there were some some words being said that just were not appropriate so why come out and make a statement or say something in the public eye to say hey this is not who we are if nothing never occurred jack something occurred and now people are trying to say no that's all it is but to unban a fan you, you can't do that um that this is what was said, and this is where other people on the other team said this was 
what we heard and we know what we heard. And the coach said, I, I know what I heard. And I almost talked talk about leaving the game. Yeah. That's, um, come on, man. <laughs> you came down stern. Just, just stick with it. Don't try to change it up now. That whole theme of trying to kind of gin up a false scenario. Where, where does right. that even, t- where does that go? Correct. Like, where does that even happen? How does that happen? You know what I mean? It, like, it's just such a massive uh, conspiracy to try to put together that I guess makes people feel better as though these things don't occur. This stuff happens all the time. Right. And the burden of proof now is on the, on, on the, the victim, lady. which yeah. is so, I mean, so often the case. Um, wow. BYU did reiterate its uh, commitment to zero tolerance policy for racism at its athletic events, uh, but apparently only when uh, the video and audio prove it. <laughs> Man. Yeah. Uh, let's change gears. We don't have a lot of time left. Uh, you pointed out something that made my head explode. Uh, <laughs> Yours. When it, when it <laughs> happened this week as um, Mickey Joseph made history at the University of Nebraska. He was named interim head coach for the rest of the season, Scott Frost, and all that money got uh, excused from those responsibilities <laughs> on Sunday. I want to feel bad for Scott. This is his school. Uh, yeah. He really wanted to work to make this program work. But, man, when they send you out with nearly $20 million, baby. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you're all right. What Coach O say? <laughs> <laughs> Which door do I go out of? <laughs> Everybody got told he got all that money at LSU. Absolutely, um, man. Back to this situation, the promotion marks that Mickey Joseph is not only – the first black coach in Nebraska football history. Hold on now. The first head coach of any sport at the university that is African-American. Hello. Yeah. I had to wipe my eyes when I first saw that. I was saying, no, no, no way. But it is true. First head coach of any uh, of African-American descent. Um, So I guess firing somebody is never good. You know what I mean? Because you just hope that you, like you mentioned, Frost could take care of business. But I guess there is some good that comes out of this that Mickey Joseph, and hopefully they'll snatch the interim tag off at some point and make him the full time head coach. But it's a good opportunity um, for him. It's a good opportunity for the university. Uh, the University of Nebraska has been around since 1869. <laughs> well, there's since 1900. <laughs> 22 sports. Come on now. 22. Come on now. <laughs> Mercy. Oh, man. Listen, thanks so much for swinging by. We appreciate St. Marshall coming by. Go buy that book. Get that book on your hands. I'm glad we already got it, Kirk. Uh, for our illustrious producer, Pernell Brown, that's Kirk Morrison. I'm Jason Jackson. We'll talk to you next time on Forward Progress. Forward Progress is part of the SiriusXM Sports Podcast Network. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, please give us a five-star rating and leave a review. Subscribe today wherever you stream your podcasts.